So we turn in Job, chapter 21, reading the entirety of that chapter. Though the flower fades and the grass withers, the word of the Lord endures forever. Give your attention to the reading of it, Job, chapter 21, God's word. Then Job answered and said, keep listening to my words and let this be your comfort. Bear with me. And I will speak, and after I have spoken, mock on. As for me is my complaint against man, why should I not be impatient? Look at me and be appalled, lay your hand over your mouth, when I remember I am dismayed and shuddering seizes my flesh. Why do the wicked live, reach old age and grow mighty in power? Their offspring are established in their presence and their descendants before their eyes, Their houses are safe from fear, and no rod of God is upon them. Their bull breeds without fail. Their cows calve and and does not miscarry. They send out their little boys like a flock, and their children dance. They sing to the tambourine and the lyre and rejoice to the sound of the pipe. They spend their days in prosperity, and in peace they go down to Sheol. They say to God, depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of your ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit do we get if we pray to him? Behold, their prosperity is not in their hand. The counsel of the wicked is far from me. But how often is it that the lamp of the wicked is put out, that their calamity comes upon them, that God distributes pains in his anger? that they are like straw before the wind and like chaff that the storm carries away. You say God stores up their iniquity for their children. But let him pay it out to them that they may know it. Let their own eyes see their destruction and let them drink of the wrath of the Almighty. For what do they care for their houses after them when the number of their months is cut off? Will any teach God knowledge? seeing that he judges those who are on high. One dies in his full vigor, being wholly at ease and secure, his pails full of milk and the marrow of his bones moist. Another dies in bitterness of soul, never having tasted of prosperity. They lie down alike in the dust, and the worms cover them. Behold, I know your thoughts and your schemes to wrong me. For you say, where is the house of the prince and where is the tent in which the wicked live? Have you not asked those who travel the roads and do you not accept their testimony? And the evil man is that the evil man is spared in the day of calamity, that he's rescued in the day of wrath? Who declares his way to his face? And who repays him for what he has done? When he is carried to the grave, watch is kept over his tomb. The clods of the valley are sweet to him. All mankind follows after him, and those who go before him are innumerable. How then will you comfort me with your empty nothings? There is nothing left of your answers but falsehood. As for the reading of God's word, may bless it to us. So you're familiar with the old saying that the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. Now, this is a useful proverb as we have a tendency to think that others 
always have it better than us. We are compare ourselves with someone else, and then we will throw ourselves a little pity party because we think we have it so much worse. But the reality is that their green pastures aren't always so green. The neighbors that we envy have their own struggles, and they often think it that think that we have it easy. Our comparisons have a long track record of not being very accurate. And yet, some people do have it much better than others. Certain neighbors are spoiled compared to us. As humans, we are equal in the image of God, but life is anything but fair and equal. Now, when this person is talented and upright, their good fortune we don't misbegrudge as much. As much, But if they're corrupt and terrible, then their success is much harder to swallow. We will find ourselves kicking against the goads and protest. This just isn't right. Well, Job faces this frustration head on, and by his discussion, he directs us to the path of walking by faith. So we've noticed in the past three speeches that the friends have been quite repetitive. In chapter 15, Eliphaz insisted that the wicked spend their days writhing in pain and fire will consume their tent. Bildad dramatically acted out that the light of the wicked goes out to put an end to their constant anxiety and despair. And most recently, Zophar spun the tune of the fleeting joy of the wicked that will soon perish under God's wrath like Sodom. Now, they had their own lyrics, but they sang the same tune that the wicked only lose and perish. Yet, if you compare this monotony with Job, it's evident that they've been talking past each other. For Job has focused much more on his own predicament. He mourned his torment and his unease under God's hand as an enemy, and he also gave a handful of robust statements of faith in God to be his heavenly witness and his living redeemer. The friends have spoken abstractly how the retribution principle always snares the wicked in their sins. But Job zeroed in on his own unique problem and his relationship with God. And this lack of communication is why Job now, with exasperation, pleads with him just to listen. Pay attention to what I'm saying. He even tells them, look at me and be appalled. The friends have yet to honestly see Job. So they need to bear with him and hear him. For Job's complaint isn't with men, it's with God. Hence, the friends shouldn't take it personally. The best thing that they can do, actually, as Job says, is put the hand to the mouth. Silence will from them will be Job's best medicine. So far, the friends have attempted to comfort Job with many words. Eliphaz even labeled his comfort as being from God himself. But Job counters Your words hold no consolation, but your silence would be nice. Indeed, what a poignant point this is for counseling, that often the most effective and tender thing we can do is silent listening. 
Yet now Job sets sail into his main argument in verse 7. Why do the wicked live well, he says? They grow old and increase in strength and wealth. Now with this, it's evident that Job now takes head on what the friends have been saying about the wicked only perishing. And now he supplies counter evidence. Sure, some wicked may get it for their crimes, but other wicked people live long and prosper. Yet this verse is not just a data point, but it's also framed as a question. Yes, it is true that the wicked can have a very good life, but why? Why does God permit such longevity to those who are evil? This brings in the issue of God's wisdom in running history. You see, if retribution rules the roost so that the wicked can only suffer, then the very existence of the wicked prospering calls into question God's wisdom. With this, Job both argues that the retribution principle is not reliable and how it reflects upon God. But he continues on listing off how well it can go for the wicked. He says the wicked can have long and wonderful lives. They get to see their kids and grandkids flourish. Fear doesn't in their home, enter their homes. Their cattle will breed and calve like rabbits and never have a miscarriage. Then they let their kids run free like flocks dancing in the pasture. Now this verse expresses that the wicked have many kids, a blessing in the ancient world, but also that their kids are wild hooligans, not very well behaved, and the kids run free like wild people with no fear of getting hurt. Likewise, the wicked sing and dance. Their life is like a music video. Finally, when they do die after a long span of happiness, it's quick and peaceful. They expire in their sleep with a smile on their face. And from this anatomy of the wicked, we have to admit that Job is speaking fact. Now, this isn't the case for all the wicked, which is not what Job is arguing, but it does describe plenty of wicked. For us, we witness this most visually from famous people, actors, musicians, and politicians. Some rock star spends decades in sex and drugs, but he's still going strong in his late 80s. Indeed, there's no shortage of concrete examples of perverse and despicable people who thrive and are like Teflon when it comes to bad consequences. Nothing sticks. They're magnets for prosperity and immune to punishments. And as Job mentions next, their impiety struts down the catwalk. Verse 14, they spit at God, get away from us. They say, we have no interest in knowing your ways, O God. They hate the knowledge of God, and they kick God out of their lives. Why should we serve the Almighty, they say? What's the profit for them to pray to him? These wicked are utilitarians and functionally atheistic. Like a shrewd pragmatist, they judge prayer to be pointless. It has no return on investment, so they cut it out. And God, for them, has no authority in their book. They're not going to submit to a Lord that they cannot see and touch. 
Yes, this is pretty rank godlessness. It's so foul that Job interjects a disavowal. He says, the wicked of the council is far from me. That is such impiety Job has nothing to do with, and it doesn't even compute in his head. But he also remarks how their prosperity and happiness is not in their hands. Now, by this, he means that the wicked don't really control their success, and they surely don't earn their life of luxury. That is, they're not masters of their own affluence and well-being. It isn't their brilliance behind the steering wheel, which means God permits their plenty and their ease. Their opulence and their comfort is not a clear profit from their hard work, but it falls upon them as if from above. The wicked's luckiness comes from providence. Thus, Job next asks, next asks, how often, how often is the lamp of the wicked snuffed out? How often does calamity spring upon them? How often does God afflict them with wrath? Now, these questions counter direct statements made by the friends. All three friends insisted that the Lord always and continually judges the wicked. They drew a solid line between the sin of the godless and God's speedy judgment here and now. But Job replies, really, how often? Sure, it may happen occasionally, but how often? Well, not that often. And Job has a better description then of life. Zophar declared that God always jumps into history to punish the wicked like Sodom and with haste. But really, how many Sodoms can you actually identify in history? Maybe a dozen or so? Not that very many for 4,000 years of life under the sun of recorded history. Yet the examples of the wicked suffering no punishment? These are too many, too numerous to count. The wicked being judged is more often the exception than the rule. Instead of the retribution principle being consistent, it's sporadic at best. Next, Job feels a possible objection thrown at him. Verse 19, he says, God stores up their iniquity for their children. Now, this refers to generational retribution, God visiting the, the sins of the fathers upon their children. And the friends argued for this as well. And yet Job protests this as a valid argument. Proper retribution is the sinner suffering for his own sin. Thus, retribution is God foreclosing on the wicked so that he knows it. The wicked need to see their own destruction. They have to drink the wrath of God for themselves. True justice is personal retribution. For as he goes on and says, the wicked don't care what happens to their family after they're dead and gone. As long as it's good times for them, what does it matter if evil times follow for their kids? Now, Job is not denying generational retribution. He isn't concerned with it in the abstract. Rather, his narrow point is that generational retribution doesn't support the friend's argument. They demanded that the wicked suffer for their own sins, 
And this only works if their retribution is personal. If someone else is punished for the wicked, wicked's crimes, then this is evidence for Job's point and not that of the friends. Hence, Job directs a rebuke, excuse me, at his friends, verse 22. He says, can you, can one teach God knowledge? Is it possible to instruct God on what is prim and proper? Now, well, of course not. But this is essentially what the friends are doing. They carve in stone that retribution always punishes the wicked, period. Yet if the evil person flourishes in luxury, then the friends are attempting to school God. No, God, you can't do it that way. You must follow retribution like we say. If the reality of how God rules providence differs from the friend's understanding of retribution, then they're essentially telling God how to do things. They're backseat driving God. Of course, you cannot do this. Our theology should reflect the reality of God and his ways, and we cannot force God to fit our theology as if we are the teacher and he is the student. Hence, Job highlights a mysterious part of God's providence. He says one person dies in full vigor and perfect health. He is completely at ease and at peace. His pails are full of milk and his bones hold juicy marrow. This is the coveted end of the wicked. That is, one day the wicked will shoot under his age at golf, go dancing with his wife, and then dying asleep without feeling a twinge of pain. But then there's the other person who dies with a bitter soul and who's never enjoyed happiness. Depressed, a victim of chronic pain, this guy kicks the bucket only after years of slow decline and misery. This person survived off of painkillers, but the other guy never even took an aspirin in his life. They couldn't be that more different in life and in death. But Job goes on and says, but in the grave, they're the same. They both lie in the dust and get eaten by maggots. The point being, personal piety and obedience is not an obvious contributing factor to their fates. One is wicked and dies the best possible way. The other is upright and knows only agony. And then they both end up worm food. As Tina Turner would say, what's morality got to do with it? And the point, and this, and the, at this point though, Job can feel his uh, friends shooting daggers at him with their eyes. Their disgust at what he's saying smells so strongly that he cites their protest. He says, He knows what they're thinking. They would argue against Job by saying, where's the house of the prince? How about the tent of the wicked? Now here, the prince is the righteous one, and so they object with what seems obvious to them, namely that the upright live in nice houses and the wicked are confined to tents and soon perish. Their theology of retribution can only see the upright being blessed and the godless suffering. 
Job, though, parries this remonstrance with a common-sense line of reasoning. He simply says, have you asked the wayfarer? Just survey your random road traveler, and they will tell you evidence to the contrary. Now, by this, Job rebukes their theology for being out of touch. It's ivory tower, clinical and detached. The Friends' doctrine of retribution, which they boast as being the long-standing orthodoxy of the sages, this may make sense in a prestigious Oxford lecture hall with students from prep school, but it doesn't fly in the real world. Ask your average plumber or fishmonger, and they will call bogus on them. The uneducated person who's been around the block just once will speak truer than the friends with their multiple PhDs. These travelers will testify that the evil person is often spared in the day of calamity. The crime boss gets rescued from wrath. When the Titanic sank, it was the drunken alcoholic that survived and not the godly little old lady. If anyone can get out of trouble, avoid disaster, and walk away without a scratch, it's more often the wicked than the upright. Escaping punishment is kind of what criminals excel at. Thus, when they die, Job goes on to say, the wicked are celebrated with grand funerals. His opulent casket is processed to the grave. Thousands walk in front, and crowds uncounted follow in the funeral train. People will tend the grave with offerings and gifts, He's venerated in ancestor worship. So magnificent and glorious is the funeral of the wicked that Job says even the dirt clods of the grave are sweet to him. And this can be very realistic. We've seen it. Some infamous criminal dies, but then they're praised in death as if they were a saint. Therefore, for escaping the consequences of their perverse evil, in death the wicked are lauded as heroes to be imitated. Instead of retribution being the consistent rule, more often the opposite happens. Wickedness is rewarded with happiness in life and glory in death. Thus, Job now finishes with two strong rebuking questions. First, he says, your comforts are nothing. Now, the friend's consolation of him, Job categorizes as, they amount to a puff of air, a vanishing vapor. They have tried to ease his pain by insisting over and over again that retribution always works. Job's suffering means he has sinned, he just needs to repent, and all will be better. And yet, retribution is often not at work. Morality and personal obedience regularly have no discernible contributing effect on one's happiness or prosperity. The law and one's conformity to it is not a consistent predictor of ease and safety in this life. 
Secondly, Job rebukes their answers as amounting to a sacrilege. Yes, literally, in verse 34, he labels their answers as a sacrilege, which is a sin directly against God's holiness. A sacrilege profanes God's holy name. But how does their retribution argument slander God? Well, the friends have dictated that pure retribution, according to the law, explains all of life, and it's the orthodox orthodoxy sustained by the sages. As Bildad himself maintained, retribution is part of the fabric of the natural world. It is natural law that goes back to creation itself. They have argued that the law of retribution governs all and explains all. And yet Job just proved with solid evidence that reality is different. In actuality, God rules providence by letting the wicked enjoy luxury. They enjoy the ease in life and honor in death. The Lord governs this world in a topsy-turvy manner where morality and law-keeping seem to play a small role, if any role, in determining one's happiness. Hence, if if, if the way God rules is contrary to retribution, but the friends swear it can only be retribution, then their theology implicitly reprimands God. The ivory tower theology of the friends throw a penalty flag at God for not conforming to their dogmatic principle of retribution. How dare God let the wicked flourish? This doesn't match rewards and punishment for law-keeping. Therefore, God had better listen up to the friends and they'll teach him a thing or two about how to govern the world. This is how their theology spills over into sacrilege. If our theology wags its finger at God for being unorthodox, then this profanes his holiness. Therefore, at the end of the day, what is Job arguing for? Well, his takeaway is how we live in relationship to God. How do we walk with and before God on this ball of mud called the earth? Well, the friends have paid the path with God by law alone. The reliable and certain way to receive God's blessings in this life and to know his favor is by obedience. You can always know you're standing with God by how he blesses you with concrete things like health, wealth, and family peace peace here and now. If bad things come your way, then you have been misbehaving. Get your act together and then happiness will be your happiness will be set right. By propounding strict and continual retribution, your spiritual relationship with God is set by walking by the law. This is all the religious life that the religious life with the Lord comprises of, according to the friends. Your obedience is always rewarded, and your disobedience is always smacked with a paddle. Indeed, there's a strong dose of utilitarian 
Nism in the friend's piety. You obey because it pays. You avoid wickedness because it hurts. But Job has filed solid evidence against this neat and tidy life by the law. For as he's proved, the wicked often have it best. Luxury, a happy family, immunity to calamity, and a celebrity funeral. These are what the wicked joy by their disobedience. If you want to be utilitarian, the wicked have a point. Prayer seems useless, so they don't do it. Sometimes it's the upright who suffer the lives of desperate agony. Thus the evidence is overwhelming God simply does not govern the world or our lives by consistent retribution. Sure, there's some retribution, but it's not even in the majority. Our relationship with God then cannot be a walk according to the law, but it must be walking by faith. How do you know that God is just and wise, even when the wicked flourish and the upright shrivel. You have to trust him. How do you know that the Lord loves you, even when hurt and poverty plague your obedience? You have to believe in him. How can you be sure that God desires obedience and hears our prayers, even when you seem to enjoy the curse in your life? You put your faith in him. Job's point is that our religion and piety in this fallen world is not one of walking by the law or by retribution, but it has to be by faith. And this profound insight by Job is exhibited ideally for us in the cross of Christ. For it's beyond a question that Jesus was completely righteous. Jesus never even disobeyed Mary and Joseph. He never uttered an evil word. Even amidst his most searing crisis, when the crowds were mocking him on the cross, Jesus never reviled in return. And yet for all his holy obedience, from the cradle to the end, what sort of life did Jesus experience? Well, he was poor. His brothers hated him for a time. The crowds loved his miracles, but his serious teaching, they didn't really have the stomach for. And the authorities hated Jesus so much that they executed him as an enemy of the state, a blasphemer. They killed Jesus to make the, the lives of the people better off. From the cradle to the cross, Jesus' life looked like the span of a vile, wicked person. If measured by the rewards in this life, by popular retribution, Jesus failed as an evil man. Thus, Peter says he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now, Jesus did not have faith or saving faith in the exact same we do. But as he fulfilled all righteousness to suffer that ultimate curse, Jesus had to entrust himself to the Father. He committed himself to the Father to bring him through that horrible death 
to the shores of resurrection. Thus, Hebrews calls Jesus the author and the perfecter of our faith. Jesus fulfilled the whole law and committed his spirit unto God to show forth that we live by faith. Indeed, how are we declared right with God? Well, it isn't by our law-keeping, but it's through faith alone in the righteousness of Christ. The essence of our life with God consists in this truth, that Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. By faith alone in Christ, we are justified, and by faith we are adopted as a children of the Father. We can know the Father's love, not by some mathematical equation of retribution, but we know we're loved by faith in Christ. Why are you accepted by God? Why is the Father your God now and forever? Well, it's not because of your obedience or lack thereof, but it's because you've been accepted in Christ. You are received by God through faith. And from faith to faith, the Father will never let you go and never let his love be taken from you. And once we are founded in Christ and rooted in walking by faith, then we are able to give honest comfort to others. If the pains we suffer are always dished out because of retribution, then our counseling of others amounts to little more than a rebuke session, as with the friends with Job. But if, in God's wisdom, we suffer for all sorts of mysterious and hidden reasons, then pity and mercy come into their full potential. In the gospel, compassion and kindness blossom into the most beautiful fruit of the Spirit. For as we rest in Christ by faith, then we can enter the pain of others and honestly love them, care for them, and we can do it with silence. The quiet consolation of faith will just hold the other person without saying a word. For by faith we understand that we don't have all the answers, barely a few, but we care We are present, and we happily apply balm where we can. Therefore, praise the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our only standing with God, and our eternal salvation through faith alone. And may we learn the wise lesson of Job, that we walk not by the law, but by faith alone. And in this faith, rooted in Jesus, then may we listen, console, and comfort others, and let them comfort us. Amen. Let's pray.